This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 244. Uh, We have a beautiful interlude show today, powerful, I should say. Uh, You may have caught the last few shows where we've focused on parents, carers and kids topics. We're just about to hook into a massive month on the brain. But in between these two important topics, today we're talking climate change. And I have guest Dr. Rebecca Huntley with me, who I adore. She is so smart and has written some incredible books, white papers, uh, quarterly essays uh, on the topics of climate change, gender and uh, sociology. And uh, she is one of Australia's most experienced social researchers, former director of the Mind and Mood Mood Report, Australia's longest running social trends report. She holds degrees in law, in film. She has a PhD in gender studies. And we talk about today a little bit, her book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, which was published last year. Uh, And that sort of forms informs a few of the questions that I ask her in today's chat. But I also wanted to have Rebecca on because she has uh, recently co-authored uh, authored a report that was commissioned by uh, one of the superannuation funds and uh, it was to have a look at the impact of climate change on our health as a, as a human uh, but also on the health and resilience of community uh, and I think that's a really important one and important aspect for us to be more literate in when we're having discussions about climate change because uh, you and I know that we want to hand down the planet in better shape than when we inherited it from the previous generation. Uh, But it's not always easy to have these conversations and it's not always easy to help someone see the importance of taking direct action in our day-to-day lives, changing things like our superannuation portfolios. For those of you listening from overseas, that's like a 401k or a retirement fund that you might be putting together bit by bit. And, uh, and having a look at some of the ways that we can continue the discussion on a personal level with our personal relationships, but also keep moving things up the chain so that people know in government just how important it is to the great majority of us to keep seeing action on climate change. Now, it's not always easy to decide on what the best action is. I certainly know that just having written a book about food that will be coming out soon, uh, which you can pre-order from Booktopia Books, uh, and I've got the link for that in the show notes. Um, And I can see in many different industries as many different thoughts. And the problem is that this can sometimes hinder our progress because we spend too much time fighting and not enough time looking at what our overlaps are and how we can drive issues forward regardless of perhaps individual beliefs that might sit under those changes. So we talk about all that goodness today in today's show. And before I hook into that, I want to remind you we have two excellent uh, show sponsors this month who both have fantastic offers for us. I get asked time and again, how do I clean mold? How do I get rid of this mold in my bathroom or in my uh, clothes closet where things can tend to be quite tightly packed and dark and that is just perfect scenario for mold to start growing eventually. You might have had furry shoes before, furry bags. I know I've left places where I've had to just literally throw away a, a whole bunch of things that were beyond remediation. Um, due to bad airflow and high humidity in the indoor environment. Now, sometimes that can be because uh, you live in a humid climate and there isn't enough good airflow. And even if you get airflow from the outside, the humidity outside is also too high and mold can grow. Sometimes it's because of either poor building, poor building insulation, uh, concrete slabs uh, getting wet, 
uh, because they haven't been sealed correctly or a water leak or water damage somewhere in the building structure. Now, that's obviously a bigger challenge where you need to start looking at remediation uh, options. And uh, I always recommend having a look at the resources in on the Toxic Mould Support website for some of the Australian options there. And Surviving Mould in the US has some great options as well. But if your problem is the former, either you live in a humid climate or you're just not able to achieve great airflow throughout your home and keep your indoor air humidity below 60%, which is really easy to check with something called a hygrometer, then you need to consider a dehumidifier. I honestly would not be without dehumidifiers. We have one that we oscillate between the bathroom and the laundry to always keep everything crisp and dry and to never get to the point where you have to wonder how to clean the mould. You really want to work with a preventative strategy here because mould can be dangerous to some of us. Some of us don't have the makeup to detoxify effectively and uh, it can make you really sick as you've heard me talk about on the show several times and as you've maybe heard about my own personal journey in that space. So Oz Climate uh, Dehumidifiers are one of my top recommendations. They're an incredible Australian-made, Australian-owned uh, product. And you actually have two fantastic things happening from Oz Climate this month. You have an extra 5% off their already discounted prices over at ozclimate.com.au, the website. And all you have to enter is the discount code LOWTOXLIFE at the checkout to get that extra little bit off. And when we're talking about bigger ticket items, then 5% really helps go the distance uh, and helps us achieve purchasing some of these things and bringing them into our homes. If you have a damp uh, damp part of your home, just make sure you focus on those areas. You might want to just every day rotate it through the different uh, wardrobes or bedrooms or bedrooms on the south side of the house or bathrooms on the south side of the house that don't get much sun throughout the day. Those might be the areas that you need to um, concentrate on dehumidification. But one of my favorite recommendations is just to make sure the whole family has their showers at the same time in the day, especially if you're using one communal bathroom. And then the dehumidifier goes on for two or three hours with the door and window closed in there to just suck up all that moisture and keep it crisp, dry and prevent any mold from growing. It will honestly change your life to have one of these if you've struggled with mold building up in typical areas that it can in the house as well as if you struggle with having an old house, a bit uh, drafty, a bit damp sometimes, and keeping it dry, especially keeping carpets dry and preventing mould growth through there if you have carpets, a dehumidifier can be one of your best lines of defence. There also uh, have been running a competition, and you will see on social media who the lucky winners of the Oz Climate Cool Seasons Premium 10 litre desiccant dehumidifier, which is valued at a whopping $628 recommended retail. Uh, a lucky Lotox winner has won that and I've announced that all over social. So go check out who's won. That could be you. And if not, then at least you've got your 5% off with Lotox Life at the checkout, ozclimate.com.au for their website. Uh, the second offer that we have is the awesome Block Blue Light. Again, we have a competition winner that has been announced this week over on Block Blue Lights Instagram and mine. So go check out if that's if that lucky winner is you because it was a huge uh, pack valued at $390 with basically something from each part of the range uh, and, uh, and the lucky winners over there. But if you didn't win, it's okay. You have another two weeks to make the most of the 15% off the entire range with the code LOTOXLIFE15. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, especially for the many people in New South Wales right now in lockdown, uh, I know we are, I can see my son and I wearing the daytime glasses. Now they actually have two different daytime glasses. And uh, a lot of people ask me, oh, you know, which ones do I get really sensitive? I'm prone to migraines. I often get a headache if I spend more than a couple of hours at the computer and you have uh, two different options to address the different needs. If you're just finding that you sometimes get a little bit of eye strain and you just want to protect your eyes from excess blue light throughout the day and you do find yourself working at the computer or on screens or in an artificially lit environment for a large part of your day, then you want to make sure you head um, to get 
the screen time clear lens range. Now that filters blue light down by 50% and they target the exact spectrums of blue light emitted from screens and lighting, helps alleviate eye strain and light headaches, sore tired eyes, that kind of thing. But there is also now a bit of a Mac Daddy Day lens product called the Day Max Yellow Lens Range, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. And those glasses provide maximum daytime protection by completely eliminating the blue light spike from screens and lighting while still letting the blue light we need during the day in to allow us to feel awake and alert because, of course, we do need that. So wearing those is perfect for people who know they're really light-sensitive or suffer from really bad migraines or headaches uh, and you need that extra bit of protection. So it's a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure with the daytime glasses. I love both. Uh, block blue light ship worldwide. So this is not an offer just for Australians, which is awesome. Uh, head to the website. Remember your code is lotoxlife 15 and the website is blockbluelight.com.au. That's enough about me rabbiting on about these excellent low-tox swaps that you can make. And a big thank you to our brands that help you guys make those switches a little lighter on the pocket. And now let's hook into this awesome and inspiring conversation with Dr. Rebecca Huntley about climate change and what we can do in our everyday lives. Enjoy. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? I am so well. I'm really excited to have this conversation uh, it is, um, it's a tough conversation, climate change, because it's, it's so, it makes so many people emotional on all sides, doesn't it? It, it does make people emotional. It makes them, it can make them self-conscious. We do know that for a lot of people, actually, ironically, except for people who are climate change deniers, we all wonder whether we know enough about the issue, um, are educated enough and are competent enough to talk about it. Um, uh, lots of us don't want to upset other people and be seen to be judgmental and politically pushy. So it's emotional, but it's also, I think, makes us feel um, a little uh, self-conscious and, and kind of um, makes us feel unconfident, you know, that, I mean, are we going to do this what is clearly a really important issue, justice, when we talk about it with friends and family um, Mm. or colleagues or happen to find ourselves in a conversation about climate change. Yeah, and um, you just mentioned there, it seems that the group that are climate deniers tend to not have the issues of (laughs) self-consciousness or be worried about whether they're educated enough. No, it's Uh, true. Oh, my goodness. No, no, no. I'm... um, I, I do a lot of research on climate mm. change and I see a lot of research and really common, um, a common um, attribute of people who are hardcore deniers. These aren't people who are kind of like, oh, you know, maybe it's a bit of, you know, who are kind of have questions or legitimate questions or perhaps aren't, you know, really very engaged with the issue, but people who are hardcore deniers. And in Australia, that's only about 9% of the population. Um they are untroubled by concerns about, so, you know, for example, they would generally agree with a statement, I know, you know, I know a lot about climate change or um, I'm confident talking about it. So it's really, it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, reflection of, um, of, I suppose, their level of certainty about that they're right. Um, and um, there, look, there are certainly people on both ends of the spectrum, people who are really, really, committed climate activists, um, and I would probably put myself in that basket, and people who aren't, who feel like they live and breathe this issue. Everybody else is on the spectrum of kind of, um, of, of perhaps educating themselves, wanting to know more uncertainty questions, legitimate questions in their mind, as well as a level of engagement, like not so much should I worry about this, but if I worry about it a lot, what can I do about it? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it's it's one of those things where it makes you think, is it actually the issue of being a black and white thinker in general yes. that yeah. puts us at a disadvantage yeah. of progress, isn't it? Because you could yeah. pick a multitude of issues and it's the black and white thinking group that stalls progress every time. I think what what can happen with the black and white thinking group in that respect, um, although in on climate change, the people who are 
on the, like I say, on the kind of climate activist side of the um, equation. It's not to say that we always get it right in terms of how we communicate or what we say, but we've got the science on our side. So <laughs> to say yeah. that we're equivalent to people who think that, you know, climate change is a wonderful thing or, you know, it's not really happening or even if it's happening, it's going to be great because we're going to be able to, you know, grow champagne and, you know, Britain in England. Won't yeah. that be great? You know, those <laughs> kinds of people. <laughs> um, so I don't want to make them out as those two groups being equivalent. But I suppose one of the things that is always really tricky for people is to act even in the face of uncertainty. So, um, uh, you know, and particularly with climate change, what we're asking people to do, although probably less now than um, 20 or 30 years ago when climate change became something that kind of, you know, penetrated the public discussion, is we're asking people to change based on what is um, what is projected to happen in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Humans aren't um, very good at that, are we? No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not great at it. Look at we're heart not. disease and cancer and all the it. lifestyle uh, diseases. That's right. And yeah. and we find that even when, um, you know, what we're seeing around the world and in Australia in very different ways is that climate change is having effects today on us Um and it's really interesting to see the extent to which people um, acknowledge that or want to acknowledge it or want to feel like climate change is something that will happen in the future, even when there's evidence that it's something that's happening now in our own backyard. And so that is the real challenge. And look, the research shows is that the more you are likely to see the connections between things like extreme weather, extreme heat, um, coastal erosion, what's happening in the Torres Strait, all those kinds of things, what's happening with changes in relation to biodiversity, all the rest of those kinds of things that impacts around climate change. Um, the more you're capable of making those connections and the more and the more you feel that human beings have got a big part to play in that, both in terms of causing it and providing the solutions, then the more open you are to climate action. So those connections are really critically important. Mm, critically important. Um, were you always intent on getting to the bottom of things growing up? Was this uh, <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm curious to know generally. Oh, you- yeah, we're going back to my origin yeah. story now, Alex. Yes, um, I'm very curious. Look, I think I think it's very, look, it's very hard to, to, to diagnose yourself um, uh, in that way. But I would say a couple of things. I have a friend of mine who's... Um, uh, Indian background and grew up in Australia and um, my mother's side of the family are Italian so I grew up in a very um, uh, particular kind of like and my father's side is very very um, uh, you know Australian and so she once said to me is that people who grow up in uh, two very different worlds from their parents are constantly having to negotiate those two different worlds. So if you grow up not in a monoculture in your immediate family environment, you're always trying to reconcile opposites mm. in your head. And why does that? Why does that group respond that way? And that does. And you kind of do that naturally as a child to be able to, um, to be able to um, to survive. And I think one of the things that's always um, always fascinated me I mean outsiders are generally really interesting um, generally have really fascinating reflections on um, why things are the way they are and some of the most I think interesting and perceptive commentators on Australian life like people like George Megalogenis kind of grow up in two different cultures straddling two different cultures so I think um, there's a bit of that I think that um, I have always been kind of uh my mum used to always say I was like that child who always is the emperor uh, you know and the emperor has no no clothes you know everybody else is saying something and I'm the one who's just the kind of why is that happening you know oh, I was and, exactly yeah. the same but what you've said there about growing up in two different cultures really gives me a window into that as well right. as I'm sure oh, is that right a lot of people listening yeah, yeah because yeah. I grew up very French in one respect ah, right but very, you know, at an Aussie school in Sydney since I was six and um, always was wondering why things were happening the way they were happening and why. In slightly different ways. Yeah, always, why people always respond. slightly yeah. on the outside. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. No, I think that's right. And you, you question a bit because you're being perhaps pulled in slightly different directions. So uh, 
so yes, I think so. And then I think, of course, um, if you, I really, while I really enjoyed high school and did well at high school, I really, well, at university, I was quite good at self-directed learning. And I think uh, people who are kind of got inquiring minds um, are quite happy to work. And I've never, I've, I've always been somebody who's done lots of different things. Like I've always never kind of took a kind of institutional pathway I've always kind of basically worked for myself and followed kind of ideas that mattered to me and so I think that um, my educational context and my professional life enhanced some of those um, skills over time so it's been a bit a bit um, the context I grew up in a little bit about my character but also in the enormous privilege to be able to um, uh, mainly because of my family background, but also because I grew up in a time long before, like not not now, it's a lot more expensive to study now, uh, a lot harder. Um, uh, I, I was at a time when, when um, exploring the issues that were really interesting to you at university was still a luxury that you could afford to do at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, Imagine so. putting barriers up to education and people who want it. Absolutely. Well, that's bizarre. what we're doing. We're creating yeah. a very um, problematic educational context, which is very myopic and very high bars to, to go to university, high bars to, um, and then and then this kind of odd, you know, narrowing down this idea that, education is all about vocation and of course it is but you, you don't have to have a kind of um, narrow uh, approach to that. Mm, 100% really, yeah. as a humanities grad myself That's I right. totally agree. Mm. Um, so that everything you've just said uh, and I'm going completely off script now because I just think <laughs> this is really interesting before we circle back to the topic at hand is how interesting would it be, you're a researcher, so tell me if I'm wrong, but how interesting would it be to study critical thinking, uh, spectrum thinking, like flexibility of thought and openness, and cultural background, either single culture, dual culture. Yeah, yeah, really or interesting. immigrated or, you know, I think that would be such an interesting no. study. And look, I think one of the things, I mean, while I don't know off the top of my head any specific studies around that, what I think is fascinating when I talk to employers mm. and I talk to the Australian C-suite leaders in Australia is employers say, what we want is critical thinking. What we want is flexible, you know, critical thinking. And then you also go, well, you really need to tell our political leaders you know, <laughs> that that's the case because, yeah. you know, you develop critical thinking in a university, con in an educational context, which is not like the one that we provide at the moment. And, and the pathways towards that are becoming much harder. Um, so um, absolutely valued by employers. They're looking for critical thinking and... Um, and then at the there's been quite a lot of work being done in the kind of area of kind of leadership and professional decision making, which is that if you have a board or a group of people that are all completely similar in their background, they're all going to make similar, they're going to kind of create a kind of group think that's really problematic. And actually, you do need quite different people. And some of those people might be different in terms of their life experience and background. But I mean, there's some one of my one of my favourite books that I read um, nonfiction books in the last couple of years is a book called um, uh, The Power of Introverts by Susan Cain, who talked about we live in this extrovert world where people feel like you know you know kind of very much the social media landscape really privileges that. But she talks about the power of introverts and introvert thinking, and talks about the importance of having different kinds of people like that on your team who think differently, and some of that is some of that is probably inherited cognitive, <laughs> um, uh, you know, kind of um, predilections, but a lot of it is cultural, gender, uh, you know, um, uh, economic background, and we do need that diversity or we're not going to be able to test the ideas that we come up with and we're not then going to be able to really deal with everything that, you know, the kind of increasingly volatile, insecure, constantly changing environment that we live in mm. with same, same thinking. Yeah. Um, and you can see that too in our, um, 
parliaments <laughs> and yeah. you know if you have a cabinet where perhaps everybody is of a particular kind of background perhaps they all went to the same couple of schools mm. you don't always see good governance emerge from those kinds of um, environments I've got to say and there's been you know, like yeah. I said quite a lot of work being done on the the power of diversity in decision making um, and how critically important that is. Well, and then you could extrapolate that out to agriculture, couldn't you? And oh, mon- absolutely. Monocultures don't work. You know, monocultures they- can create real problems. They can seem, it can seem like that's an efficient and easy way to progress, but it, it's not, it doesn't future proof you. It doesn't help you deal with crises. It doesn't have to be, help you deal with massive changes that and unexpected changes. Um, and if some of the buzzwords of this world that we live in are things like being able to pivot and, you know, resilience and all those other kinds of things, all those kinds of um, qualities and characteristics we need to be able to survive, then um, monocultures, whatever they might be, not well set up for that. Mm, absolutely. And some, somewhere that I noticed a huge amount of diversity and diverse conversations, even at my own delegate table, mm. uh, was at the climate reality training. That yes, we that's the first at. time we met, I think. Mm. you were. Had you just done your book at that yeah, stage? Yeah, it just yes, came yeah. out. Yeah, just the came year out, before. Yeah. yeah, and I yeah. think you had one on the I was, way. I was writing. Out. Yeah, that was one of my first things that I did was go to the conference as part of the research of the book. Yeah, and I think you would have been as struck by the diversity of leadership in the room as I was. I mean, you have the head of the whole thing, Al Gore, a cattle farmer, for goodness sakes, you know, talking climate change and then, um, you know, how unpopular is is meat right now. Um, but, again, you know, black and white thinking is not going to lead to progress. Um and, you know, everything from cultural groups, ages, different types of businesses, different types of energy providers, different types of educators, everyone was in the room working on the same problem. Um, yeah, absolutely. I found that. And, you know, I, one of the things I did that week was I went to the um, Faith and Climate Breakfast. So there was quite a lot of people there from faith communities across Australia, um, uh, critically important role of faith. Um, and climate activism in Pacific Island nations as well. So, you know, for a for a environmental, you know, kind of gathering, you know, it um, it was diverse and interesting. It was diverse in an interesting way. Not just that there was um, ethnic diversity and there was a kind of pretty much gender parity in that room, but I think you had people across the political spectrum in some ways or across the kind of pathways into activism so I was sitting at a table at the front because I was one of the um, speakers where there was a whole lot of people from corporate Australia but there would be some people who weren't you know much more from a traditional activist um, background who might have well glued themselves to the sidewalk in front of the companies of some (laughs) of those um, you know that some of those people worked for so um, but I thought that that was useful and I thought that that um, you know was important it's not how we want every environmental organisation to operate, but we need diversity within the environment movement as much as anything, more now than ever before, because the cha- you know the timeline is tighter and the challenge is bigger. Once upon a time, 30 years ago, we could say this was a policy and government issue and they should lead. We've, lo- we've lost that opportunity. We've got to throw the kitchen sink at it. We need Extinction Rebellion, but we also need... Woodside and BHP committing to decarbonising. We need everything, like I said, everything thrown at it. Well, that's right. And, I mean, the beauty of big business is they know that if they start to lose customers and their market share graphs show them that things are changing and or if, you know, a big super fund that has huge amounts of fossil fuel shares or and they see people dropping off like flies they respond often much faster yeah. than governments do. Yeah, and that's what we've seen the last couple of years. And, you know, I know that that can discon for some people for whom the challenge is not just dealing with climate change, but also dealing with kind of broader environmental and politically progressive issues. Sometimes that can feel like an uncomfortable, um, sometimes that can make people feel uncomfortable. And I suppose I, I've my views about that are complicated as well. I mean, I always say there's nothing that 
a small group of very motivated, wealthy white men can't achieve. (laughs) (laughs) You know. It's true, though. No, but it is true. It is really true. And let's think about what where we were this time last year, Alex, when we were kind of probably still, you know, in lockdown or kind of merging slowly out of it. At that stage, we were, you know, vaccines were being developed and people kept saying a vaccine might be a year away, but actually, you know, I just got my first jab. So where people are getting vaccinated. So when we turn up, we turn our mind towards things, particularly really, really, really big companies when lots of money is at stake and leaders want things to happen, they can happen. That's important. I mean, what I, the things that make me, make me concerned, not concerned, but the things that I want to continue to fight for is that as we begin to expand renewable energy and address climate change, that we don't do it at the expense of First Nations um, communities around Australia, who were really some of the people who'd be really affected by how some of that land will be used, about how some of those new minerals and opportunities that um, in the mining sector will um, happen because of the renewable energy. Um, Uh, revolution that's really happening. That's why when you think about things like climate action and people could talk about climate, you know, justice, um, there, you know, some there are some pushback about that from some parts of the community. It can be troubling, but, you know, I wouldn't want us to, for me, it would be cold comfort to address climate change at the expense of the momentum that we're building around justice for First Nations people. And also think more broadly, I think, while the economic imperatives are critically important to bringing about the change, there is a larger, much harder, but still much more urgent um, need, which interconnects with your concern about how we see ourselves in relation to the natural world. So um, we do need to realise we can't just use the natural world as we have for 200 years, we do have to we do have to attain some kind of balance with the natural world, and we do have to have some kind of sense of of the limitations of what we can do and the power of what we can do. But do we exercise that power? And so I don't, you know, I I for me this transition is more than just let's put solar panels on everybody's house. <laughs> Oh, a hundred percent. It also has to be. Yeah. Let's just let's realize that we also don't want to cut down that tree, and we also have to think about what does success look like, what does affluence look like, what does fairness look like in our world. Um, yeah, and, so, and shift the metric of success yeah. all being pinned on GDP profit. That's exactly right. Now yeah. that that may be a hunt. That may be a hundred-year project and we don't have a hundred years to deal with climate change. So it has to happen in parallel. It's much harder because it's bringing about quite a significant value shift across the community, but that that needs to be kept in mind rather than just, hey, renewable energy is going to make the same, like, people who've been wealthy before wealthier. Mm. (laughs) And I I think it disempowers the average everyday person from the super powerful actions we can take. I mean, you know, food waste, if you made it into an emitting country, is the third largest country in the world. That's something we can all do today. Um, You know, celebrate compost like Costa tells us to. So it's, um, I think if we keep it all on, oh, that's the big people over there having this conversation uh, and hopefully we get more renewables, then it sort of makes us kind of relieved and then we go, okay, great. So that's all looks like it's happening, looks like we'll get there and therefore we'll be okay. Well, we won't actually. It's going to take a whole bunch of things um, to turn the ship around. Yeah. Um, Your book last year, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, uh, so good. Thank <laughs> you. We really need more vocab. I think it is a skill that we need to cultivate. Yeah. Um, and I just want to read the blurb out for anyone sure. who might, might not have read it yet. So the key to progress on climate change is in the psychology of human attitudes and our ability to change. Whether you're already alarmed and engaged with the issue, concerned but disengaged, a passive sceptic or an active denier, understanding our emotional reactions to climate change, why it makes us anxious, fearful, angry or detached, 
is critical to coping on an individual level and convincing each other to act. So the first question I want to ask you about your book is how do you cope on a personal level? You know, you're so well researched. You're, you've said you're an activist in this space. Um, what does your, like, you know, you see another article come out, another devastating report. How do you feel that viscerally and what is the next step you take? Yeah, and look, um, one of the things that I did in the book is interviewed lots of activists from around the world because um, who are operating in lots of different contexts. So whether that be, you know, Fiji or Zimbabwe or the United States um, uh, or the Philippines or Australia. So I kind of tried to see whether there was a common thread amongst these very kind of um, different activists doing different kinds of work around the world um, from different perspectives and, you uh, you know, so I probably, look, I probably would have arrived to this formula myself, but they kind of gave me a, pre- <laughs> gave me a preview, which is basically um, you can engage in the science and keep up to date with it, but you do not have to wallow in the science because if you wallow in the science, you're in real trouble. Um, it's also not my job to wallow in the science <laughs> and read one disaster a story after another. Um what I, it, but it also I don't block it off because it is important because so much is happening at the moment in climate change. It's important, you know, I don't want too much toxic positivity to become like it's all going to be fine, everything's happening, all the rest totally. of it. Totally. Because there are some real challenges, right? Mm. And the only way that um, we motivate people to change is to give people an understanding that, that there are things at stake. There are things at stake right now. And also to be realistic that there is some loss already um, happening and inevitable. So that is important. It's a it's a spur to action, right? But spending an enormous amount of time reading it constantly and then perhaps reacting from a position of, um, I suppose, destructive because, because anger and fear can be productive, but destructive anger and fear so lashing out at other people not very good and also the other thing that I think can happen is you get so wound up in it that you don't give yourself a bit of a break and allow yourself a bit of like you know you need to pull back this kind of sense of oh my god you know that place is burning down you talk to activists who say like I've been like you know they use war metaphors a lot like I've been in this battle and like they kind of feel like they're constantly at this kind of level of um alert it's not good for you it's not good for you personally right no good for stress will kill us faster exactly so it's not a battle really it's Mm. um it's it's a it's a long drawn out one of the one of the most one of the wonderful women I interviewed for the book um, from the Philippines said that her father, who was an environmental lawyer, said to her, "You've got to stop thinking of this as a fight or a battle. You've got to start thinking of it as a game, a long like a Game of Thrones, like long game. It's a strategy, right? It's a long, long game." And you win some, you lose some, and then you just kind of sit, you think, and then you try something new. Because if you think about a battle of winners or losers, it's just not, that's actually not productive, right, in the long term. Um, And it's very difficult with something like climate change because while there are some villains of the piece, there's no doubt about it, it's it's not that simple. It's actually one of the challenges for us. There are some definite people who are... um, significant barriers and then there are other unlikely allies that once upon a time you would have considered to be um, enemies that are now no longer enemies. This is why the Game of Thrones thing is really interesting. One of the things that's fascinating and why I've really enjoyed working with the investment community on this is once upon a time people who had the big money, right, investing in fossil fuels, they're now moving away and they're now the champion, some of the champions of the importance of the transition and the importance of the change. I've even met people who made, who's particularly philanthropists, who've made their money from mining, deciding that they don't want to do that anymore and putting their significant resources towards uh, nature-based solutions to climate change and accelerating renewable energy. So, 
the kind of um, so getting too caught up in the negative and too caught up in what's happening it is can sometimes be problematic for you in terms of what is essentially a long game, not a sprint. So that's one thing. The other thing I do is I'm lucky in that everything I do professionally and personally is about climate. So even if I read something that's upsetting, I put immediately all of that negative emotion into um, impetus to do what I'm doing. So it just offsets it. It's like an offset. Like I see offset. what you did there. <laughs> now, that's easy for me because I could really change my career as a social researcher and make a decision that I was only going to work on climate change for clients that were doing work on climate change. So it's kind of easy for me. That being said, there isn't a job in Australia, there isn't a job, a company, a profession, a sector, a corner of this country where somebody can't say, what is, what can I do for, about climate change within the context in which I already operate? You do not have to shave your hair and join Extinction Rebellion to do something about climate change. That's not, if you want to join Extinction Rebellion, that's fine. But sometimes it's more powerful when, it can be more powerful when a group of people, maybe a group of architects, go and say to their boss, you know, we don't want to work on buildings that are, you know, we want to look at things like um, green steel and we want to look at making sure that every building that we build and we talk to our clients about the importance of making, you know, of having, you know, decarbonising our industry and thinking about building more climate resilient buildings and thinking about being an advocate for building suburbs and communities that can deal with hate and poor people don't have to swelter and rich people are there with their, you know, solar panels and all the rest of it. So there isn't, and, you know, everything, it doesn't really matter what job you are and where you are, there are ways in which you can um, bring your conversation and voice to the climate change um, question in a way that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to change who you are and what you do. Hundred um, percent. So that's I mean, it. Yeah. So that's it. So don't wallow in the in the bad news too much. Think about what you've got the power and what you've already got the resources to do um, to to make a contribution, no matter how small that is. You don't have to. You know, like I said, you don't have to be Greta. Mm. Well, yeah, and, you can be the office manager that uh, buys yeah. free paper. That, that no, it's a whole range of things. Their highlighters from plastic to pencil. You know, this well, does so all many... these kinds of things, or how, or invites. You know, invites. Um, uh, you can be the CFO who says, "Okay, we're going to get um the you know the some of the big super funds that are de- you know moving away their investments away from software will come and talk." To, the, to all the employees about how doing this isn't going to be difficult and isn't going to be problematic in the end. So there's a whole range of things you can do. Um, uh, and just try and find um, the other thing I think I really think is the case is as much bad news as there is, there's more, there's, there's a lot of good news. There's a lot of amazing stuff happening here and around the world when like-minded communities or organisations or people decide, up with this, we will not put. <laughs> and, and I collect those, I collect them every day. And um, at the moment, one of my favourite things to watch is uh, this fantastic activist called um, uh, Daniel does this thing called coal miners in Teslas. So he puts all these people in that are kind of anti-environment, you know, kind of like, would be suspicious about climate activism and electric cars. He puts them in a Tesla and he makes them accelerate and talks to them about climate. It's just so much fun. Wow. It's kind of like Seinfeld coffee with stars. Exactly. But it is like, like, yeah, coal miners and Tesla. So I mean, it's terrific. So you should Google it. It's great. So there's Mm. lots of other, you seek and you will find a lot of stories about how, um, human beings can get together to deal with some of these issues. Mm, And I love from that example about coal miners in Teslas, what a beautiful, non-confrontational, compassionate way to base a conversation rather than having to have these us against them dynamics, which lead us nowhere. No, no, no. And and what they do is they can, what those us and them 
dynamics do, and I talk about it a bit in the book, is that they veer into the they veer into the very complicated um, territory of shaming and blaming, um, which is again in this situation, you know, it's a very it's a handful of human beings that we should be shaming and blaming. You know, politicians that take enormous amounts of money from fossil fuel. Um, companies and and deliberately say that they ignore the CSIRO, ignore all these other kinds of things. You know, all of those people who are kind of actively, selfishly, venally making decisions um, that actually stop what's going to be good for the community. Everybody else is just trying to do their best, mm. right? Um, yeah. We're all doing some kind of, we're all emitting CO2. We're all doing some kind of damage. In the end, in the end, shaming and blaming people from that does not bring about behaviour change. It brings about, and this is why the psychology is a defensive mechanism of having felt being felt attacked. If people feel attacked, particularly if they feel attacked as human beings rather than their behaviour, we do need to find a way to disaggregate what people do and who they are. Um, it's really important if we are about the job of persuasion of understanding persuasion, behaviour change. Um, uh, that's pretty important, particularly in countries where when it's not exactly like we're not a totalitarian country where we can force people to do things and we don't want to be. Within the context of democracy, the role of persuasion is really important, the role of social licence, the role of social norms. So you don't actually tap into all of that if you're tapping into shame and blame too much. Not at all. So can I give you a, um, a make-believe scenario where Rebecca sits down to have a coffee with a young politician yep. who hasn't been completely jaded by the system yet and is talking to uh, potential donors. Oh, great. I'm just seeing out the window there a gardener spraying glyphosate on weeds. Oh, gosh. Lovely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wow. Have a little chat to him after. I think you um, will. In a very compassionate, non judgmental yeah, right. way. Yeah, yeah, uh, because he is not wearing a mask and oh, has wow. no covering on his <gasps> legs. That's why I want to talk to him. Yeah. Almost. Um, so I digress. So you're sitting down, you're having a coffee, young politician. Uh, it doesn't really matter what the party is, but he obviously looks like a rising star. And so a lot of lobby groups are coming to have friendly chats to him. And the stars get put in his eyes about that particular group from that particular fossil fuel um, uh, uh, industry, uh, say, we'll make you the next big MP with the $3 million donation we propose because we reckon you've got the stuff that's going to make it to PM one day. How do we have a conversation with people in a preventative sense? You know, how do we get this preventative trajectory happening where people don't get consumed by the system that has actually produced the situation we're in today? Well, Alex, I've got to say, I mean, when you say that's a hypothetical situation, it's a, it, it, it's worse than that. I mean, it, it doesn't actually, you, it would be very difficult for you to get pre-selected in any party except for the Greens if you had a very strong stance around fossil fuel donations. In fact, you wouldn't have it. Would the fossil fuel donation, would the fossil fuel industry say we'll give you $3 million? They wouldn't because they would find another way to funnel that money in through because we have the, some of the worst, we have really, really, not at the state level, but it's quite bad federal disclosure laws around donations. So when politicians say to me, oh, well, you know, the, the influence of the fossil fuel industry in politics through money is exaggerated, I'd say, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but we don't know. It is opaque. It is. Right? Didn't, so um, wasn't it Robin Williams that once said, I really wish they would wear their um, political donors as T-shirts like the no, race no, no, car like, drivers? Yeah, exactly. That would yeah. be wonderful. So now, we knew a, who they were sponsored exactly. by? Exactly. The problem mm. in Australia is that even if we had a law like that, people would be putting those logos on their T-shirts six months after you voted. So you actually don't know when you vote who funds the campaign. 
you don't know how much they put in because they donate, they split donations. So you only have to disclose up to a certain amount. That's quite good. So, you know, you, you're smart. You've got the right people. You could donate, you could donate $3 million indirectly to a political party without really having to disclose it. Um, so we've got some really problematic laws in Australia, which means that a lot um, is hard to determine, right? The actual level of influence is hard to determine. If you were a young political aspirant and you said, not only will I not take any money from fossil fuel industry, the fossil fuel industry, I don't think my party would, you would not get pre-selected. It would be very, very, very hard. So let's say you don't say any of those things and you suddenly find yourself <laughs> in the position and you want to kind of make it, you want to decide to change your views. It is really difficult to be somebody who is out there and in both political parties, and I say that as a member of the Australian Labor Party, it is quite difficult to get out there and say these kinds of things and to be an outlier. There'll be a moment where that's not the case. There were times when both political parties took money from tobacco and then they stopped doing it. There was a time where in New South Wales, um, political parties took money from property developers and now they stopped doing it. So separate from laws and they make they, they, they may make the kind of decisions. I think there will be a point where it comes with to that with fossil fuels, but that's a while away. That's a while away. So I think what would I do if, if I was advising a young politician who wanted to do that rather, like it was just you kind of managed to wanted to do, and there are many, many politicians of goodwill in both political parties that want to see a change, right, including in the Conservatives, probably well, less seeing, so in the... Na- we're yeah, and we're seeing them, them, but even less so in the... Even, even in the National Party, but at the um, local government level, potentially, and sometimes the state level. There is nothing better than having... than, than falling back on what does your electorate want you to do? And voting is a very imprecise tool to measure the extent to which people care about climate change. But if we look at all the research and we look at any time that anyone has ever done anything like a deliberative democracy forum or a citizen's jury, really ask the community, what do you want to do? The vast majority of them want a transition away from fossil fuels. They see it as inevitable. They want green spaces. They want to be out. They want their grandparents to be able to see koalas in the wild. We do have that enormous public support across the board, even in regional Australia, across regional Australia. And if you make sure that you use your community sentiment genuine community sentiment and innovative ways to find out that as the basis, then that's what you need to augment and that's what you need to celebrate. And we're seeing, you know, in a, at a small level, we're seeing that happen in politics, in places like the seat of Indi, which had been a very, very safe National Party seat and is suddenly now an independent seat for a whole range of reasons. But the concern of people in that part of regional Victoria for climate change is one of the reasons that that seat is the way it is. So I think that's what you would do. Um, But getting there, the barriers to getting there right now um, are not insubstantial. The barriers to getting pre-selected for parliament are pretty hard as it is. (laughs) But if you added that, if you had a really, really strong public stance about saying that... um, uh, you didn't. You did not only would you not, or but you didn't think your party should take any money from um, fossil fuel companies. You, you'd be uh, look. I you'd be out before you were in. <laughs> you'd be you'd be yeah. dead in the water before you crossed yep. the finish line. Yeah, gosh. So uh, extending talking about politics a little bit, and I want to talk about the um, report that you've prepared in partnership with Aware Super. Um, and that report was to discuss Australia specifically and the risks and benefits of action versus inaction when it comes to climate change and investment. Um, the first thing that jumped out at me, I'm looking at the report and I'm like, hold on. So the lack of action on climate change could reduce Australian economic growth by 3.6% per year, which is a devastating blow to our economy 
obviously, um, but our political leadership currently uh, is selling us the line that we need to continue as is and even approve more gas projects and all sorts. Yeah. <laughs> to secure economic growth. Yeah. So that can be really bloody confusing. It can uh, be hugely confusing, yeah. So, um, look, one of the we're at a really interesting point and it was actually off the back of um, the climate reality conf- conference that we went to um, very soon after that, I went over to the United States to spend some time at Yale University, look at the research they do on attitudes to climate. And then I went to visit the people at Climate Reality in um, Washington. And, um, uh, you know, what was really interesting from the climate reality leaders there who'd been around in American politics for a very long time, we know American politics and, you know, fossil fuels and money and all the rest of it. And one of the, one of the leaders said to me, I'm more, and this is while Trump was still president, right? He said to me, I'm more optimistic than I've ever been before because all the economics are lining up. It's not economical for a lot of these companies ongoing to hold on to fossil fuels. And we've seen that continue to happen. So what that's based on is economic modelling, you know, by, (laughs) I'm I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, by, you know, extreme left-wing organisations like Deloitte. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, who were saying, look, this is this is where the trend is going, the ongoing the ongoing trend, and the trend, I suppose, has two parts to it. The first is the investor community, led by organisations like BlackRock, but also by industry super funds um, in Australia, but the investor community more broadly, including some of the big banks, are moving their money away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Secondly. The people who that at the C-suite level, at the at the um, at the CEO level, they're surrounded by a professional class, whether it be lawyers, insurers, risk. You don't. Who are all saying, look, not acting on climate change is going to expose you to lawsuits. Is going to make all of your assets, you know, going to be real issues around your assets being insurable. This is a professional class whose role it is to make sure that companies stay profitable, right? So you've got the investor class, the legal community. We've actually seen some really, really interesting case studies in kind of law in the last couple of weeks, Shell being sued. Yes. Um, those young Australians taking the federal minister for um, the environment to the federal court saying they had a responsibility to think about climate change and the decisions they make. So you're starting to get all of these kinds of things happening. And so there, so so there's both a carrot and a stick to move away. Then what you're getting in Australia is a lot of our critical um, export markets, and people think a lot about China and India, but we're actually thinking mainly the US, Japan, and Korea, particularly the Japan and Korea, critically important for our gas exports, starting to make some quite ambitious targets, not about 2050, but about 2030. But more than that, the companies in those countries starting to make commitments as well. So what you're seeing is a global picture shifting really quickly. Um, At the government level, at the multinational corporation level, at the investor level. So we have to think about Australia, while we're important in terms of things like coal exports and gas exports, we're not an economic powerhouse. We we are a small nation. A drop in the ocean. Yeah, we are a drop in the ocean. And the idea that we can go one direction and expect to remain prosperous when the west of the world is going in another direction. And we have been, I mean, look, we've been headed towards the bottom of the table in terms of action on climate change for a long time. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Alex we, yeah, the UN has said that we the are at the, the bottom. <laughs> yeah. We're at the bottom I of the, that. And actually, before I, before that came out, about a week before I put on Twitter, I said, you know, we're at the bottom of the vaccination table and we're at the bottom of the We're at the bottom table. of everything. Yeah. And, and the, what's dismaying to me about that is I would hate our reputation globally to be seen as anti science as anti-progress, as anti-science, as, as not caring where the international community is going. So we've got a real, there's a risk there, 
right? There's a risk there and, and probably a risk that people don't understand about, about how multinational corporations that invest in this country think this is the climate that's happening here. Not, not just climate as in climate change, but this is the environment. Will I invest in this country? Is this the right bet? Or do I have a country, do I have a government or, you know, uh, a governance context which doesn't give a shit about the rest of the world, doesn't really care whether people are vaccinated or not, doesn't really see the writing on the wall when it comes to fossil fuels, wants to cling to the past, doesn't want to um, embrace the extraordinary opportunities of new energy technology. You know what I mean? All of that starts to make people question whether Australia's a good bet. And that, and I would hate for that to happen because what that, ha- and, and again, what's hard for people to understand is what does that really mean? I know it sounds like highfalutin talk, but what it means is fewer jobs, less wage growth, less investment, less people wanting to come here, less people caring about what we think, less people. Less export us, markets. Less export for our, and more than anything else, for our food for our agriculture, for our wine, all the rest of it, that is a real worry. That's one of the reasons why you've seen the Farmers' Federation and quite a lot in uh, quite a lot of people, really important players in the ag sector, start to speak out um, strongly about these questions, mainly partly because of our kind of our tentative relationship with China, but also um, in relation to what's happening with climate change. So you're right that it's confusing. Part of it is because, and it's absolutely true, we've built a lot of our prosperity off the back. You know, after sheep and grain, it was it was fossil fuels. But that time is gone. It's not ended today, but you can see. You well, there can, are many mining towns in WA that will tell you it left yeah, a number some of years time ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. But what we can see is we can see, you know, the horizon for a while was really, you know, we're approaching the horizon. And as with any change, as we all imagine, as we all know, any change in life, if you don't prepare for it, then um, then you hit hard for it. There's a wonderful line, and I think it's there's a wonderful line in um, Ernest Hemingway's um, for who the bell tolls, and I think this is so right about anything. It, it's it's just the most extraordinary phrase, and it's right about everything. It's right, it's right about health. It's right about how you plan the economy. And the main character gets asked by a friend, he says, you know, how did you lose your fortune? And he said, a little bit every day and then suddenly all at once. And that's how change happens, right? You know, if you don't, if you don't care about your health every day, you just get, you know, you don't really see it going and then suddenly bang, right? And you can't, once relationships, you know, that you have with people, suddenly once it starts to fall off that cliff, Pulling it back up the cliff requires the most extraordinary time, effort, resources, and you can't do anything about the loss. So the, the, the change is coming. You can see it. And if we don't start to turn the ship around now, we're in real trouble, real economic trouble, let alone the environmental impact um, issues that we're already seeing and are going to get worse. Absolutely. And do you think uh, taking a look at our super funds uh, is one of the most powerful ways we can turbocharge that change? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's interesting about super, and it's an area that I've researched for many years, is that, you know, when you actually look at the amount of money, just just take industry super funds, the amount of our um, hard-earned dollars, right? Yeah. Um, in super funds, you think what an extraordinary resource, right? It's a, it's a, one of those reforms from the 1980s, which has been lauded around the world. And when you spend time talking to people overseas about superannuation, they go, "Oh my God, isn't that amazing?" Mm. So we've got this incredible resource. We've got, um, particularly in the industry super fund play uh, area, a commitment to putting people before profit. Um, in so many ways, right? So those, um, and so, but also belief that that money can be used both to return um, return on investment for members, but also to create a better world for those members, a world where we are mentally and physically healthier, where we live in cohesive and beautiful communities, where we have green space to enjoy, particularly, mm-hmm. which have kind of, got to say, the enhanced um 
value of green spaces that we've all been locked down, you know, that yeah, we can exactly. walk, walk to and experience. So we've got this incredible resource, like I said, not just to return money to us when we when we retire, but to create a better community and a greater world. One of the things in terms of environmental activism, one of the difficult things and the things that I come up across when come across when I'm talking to people is they go, look, you know, I try and recycle at home and we try and be good about energy. We want to get solar panels and I'm trying to drive less. And, you know, when I vote, I do think about the environment, but what else can I do? Mm. This is something that you can do. Yeah. Right. This is something you can do in between remembering to take your keeper cup and voting in an election. Ah, it's a 10 minute phone call. Exactly. This is easy. This is something you can do, which actually, particularly if you're if you're you're my age, you know, we're 20 years or whatever away from having to use this superannuation money, is really not going to cost us anything, but sends an extraordinary message to these to the to the people with the power to create a better um to invest in the kinds of industries that are going to create a better future. So it's a really powerful thing we can all do. And one of the things that's fascinating to to watch for me, having researched superannuation for a long time, is pretty much anybody under 45, I would say 40, but certainly people under 30 not interested in superannuation. Why would they be, right? It's Mm. just something that they tuck away. But when you say to them, um, look, if you did this, you know, once you remember your password or whatever or ring the right people, then Mm. this is the effect. They're really all for it, right? Mm, So they're kind of very enthusiastic. So it's something that they're not very engaged in, not engaged in their superannuation, but thinking about this makes them think, oh, that's easy, I can do that. Mm. They know they're not going to be have a problem when they have to access this money, whatever, in 40 years' time, but they think this is me sending a signal that this matters to me. And, of course, we know when we look at the data under people, under Australians under 25, the vast majority of them are concerned or alarmed about climate change and only 1% of them could be described as deniers. So we've got a rising generation of superannuation fund members, consumers, citizens um, and voters for whom this is not controversial. Yeah. (laughs) The whole issue of climate change, prepared to talk about it and prepared to act. Which is incredibly positive and a very positive note to finish on. Yes, it is. Thanks Thank so you much, Alex. so much, uh, Rebecca. That was enlightening and I think it's given everyone some ideas on maybe how they can keep conversations going in a non-judgmental way as well as some practical ways that we can actually yeah. advance the cause. Really Thank appreciate you so- your time. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.